Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, welcome back, adapters. On today's episode, I have Dr. Catherine Mock from the Stanford Institute. She used to be one of the directors on the IPCC Adaptation Report, and we dig into what it's like to be working at the IPCC and on the adaptation side. And we also talk about a lot more subjects than that. Also, in the second segment of the podcast, and it's a much shorter segment, but I talk to Dan Ackerstein and to Tim Watkins, and we come, they come on and we talk about what's going on over at the EPA and some of the recent comments on climate change from the new administrator there, Scott Pruitt. Certainly not encouraging words from the new I- administrator. Okay, a little bit of housekeeping here, your favorite part of the episode. Don't forget get that you can subscribe to the podcast, just either an iPhone, you can use your podcast app and look for America Daps and subscribe. Or on Android, I think most people are getting it's Google Play or Stitcher. So please check it out, subscribe, and please consider writing a review. It's it's easy just to click the review, even if you're just starring it as opposed to writing anything, I'd appreciate it. I have a Facebook page, America Daps, just search for that, and a community group on Facebook page where people come and they post links or they weigh in on previous podcasts or if they have questions We had a recent episode on Cli-Fi, and people were making suggestions on different Cli-Fi novels that they've been reading. So that's kind of fun. So please, I I have to approve you, but I will. And also on the website, if you want to contact me, I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. If you have ideas for guests, um, please let me know. If you have just other general feedback, I love hearing from people. If you're thinking about writing me, just please do. I love hearing from you all, hearing from people all over the world. So I love that. Also, the chance to support the podcast please consider that. You just go to the website. There's that option too. So some upcoming guests. Next week, I have Nancy Knowlton on, and we're going to be talking about the Earth Optimism Summit, and it's just what you think it is. And I also have someone from the Science March coming on to the podcast. And so we're going to have two different segments on the podcast. We'll be talking about these events that are occurring at the end of April. Also occurring at the end of April, it's a week later, it's all occurring at the end of April, is we have the Climate March in Washington, D.C. too. And I I had Bill McKibben on, legendary environmentalist Bill McKibben came on, and we talked about climate change, some of the challenges that are going on, and but we also talked about the climate march and what they're hoping to accomplish to that. So I was really thrilled to have that conversation, but I'm going to uh, have that published in the next couple of weeks with Bill McKibben. So also Judge Alice Hill, who used to work at the White House and the National Security Council, and I'll be talking about national security and climate change. And yes, it's a all-star lineup in the next month or two. So please stick around and subscribe and it'll show up in your inbox. Okay. On that note, also, wait a sec. Don't forget, you can t- tweet too. There's a lot of Twittering going on. So tweet at USA Adapts. Please tweet me and I'll tweet you back. All right. Without any further delay, here's Dr. Catherine Mark. Thanks a lot. Please stick around. Welcome back, Adapters. On today's incredible episode, I have Dr. Catherine Mock, who's the director of the Stanford Environment Assessment Facility at the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment. She's also a senior research scientist at the Department of Earth System Science and a visiting investigator at the Carnegie Institution for Science. Welcome to the podcast, Catherine. Thank you. It's great to talk with you. Well, we chatted a little bit before, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We're digging into, I think, a lot of complex subjects, and I think People love to hear from scientists. And so I've done my homework on you and you, you know, you have this incredible CV. It's like 13 pages long. It, it's quite impressive. Um, thank you. I mean, I guess it's a little bit silly, but the, the academic way is to just list everything on that document. But I think the, the big picture is what are you thinking about? What do you care about? Um, what really drives your work as a scientist? 
No, I agree. And I, I think what's really revealing that CV, and I, I have some questions on that later, is just the, the amount of material that you have on the sort of outreach that you do. And I think that's very encouraging. And, and the, the diversity of the outreach. So here you are on a podcast, and I think you've done those before. But uh, I'm very encouraged that someone like you, and, and, I, and just so people know how I, I have Catherine on the podcast, is I saw her at a Stanford Woods event in D.C., and we chatted a little bit afterwards. And after she got off that initial, like, who is this guy bothering me about this podcast we had a nice conversation and, and here you are so you know thanks for being as outgoing as you are absolutely i feel like i'm really lucky to have many parts of my job that are incredibly fun and exciting and i'd put working in, with students especially in that category but then the degree to which i get to get out into the world and talk with people is uh, another huge highlight well, I think it's an understatement to say that you are one of the world's experts on adaptation. And so my first question to you, I, I want it to be something maybe that'll throw you off a little bit. So you get a phone call and you pick it up and it's someone from the White House and they say they want you to come in and brief President Trump on adaptation. So how would you approach this sort of briefing? And ultimately, what would you say? What would you say? Knowing what you know now about President Trump, what would you say about adaptation? When we think about how we interact with the weather and climate, weather in the long term, so to speak, it's there in almost every aspect of our human experience. You know, if we think about drought, we've here in California had massive impacts over the last five years, but it's been the same for the Midwest and Texas over the last decade. If we think about heavy rain, there have been floods in Louisiana. If we think about cyclones striking shore, we've had the drama of Sandy and Katrina and the many lives lost in those events. So climate change adaptation is not really a future-oriented activity. In a lot of ways, we are very, very clearly behind the eight ball now when it comes for our preparedness for these extreme events in so many different forms unfolding in basically every community throughout the U.S. So climate change adaptation is tied to the changing climate. And there are a lot of ways that we do need to be very attuned to the way the risks are changing in truly unprecedented ways. But there are a phenomenal number of though regret starting points that are all about win-wins, understanding the vulnerabilities, exposures that we have right now and how responding them to them can improve economics for companies. It can improve the vibrancy of communities, can really be about creating the society that we want to build. Well, that that was a great answer. And I just wonder if I'm not here to knock President Trump, but I do think he has a short attention span. And so, yeah, you've got to go in there quickly and just kind of resonate with the guy and i'm sure that's just you know a challenge for a lot of scientists in, in any number of audiences that you're in so but on that note how did you get involved with adaptation i mean how did it start your, your background i think is in biology you studied undergrad and you, you went to stanford to get your phd but how did you end up focusing on adaptation so as i was finishing my phd i i loved the research it was out in the field uh, in the intertidal zone of the oceans where the waves are crashing and studying all the things growing on the shoreline and taking engineering techniques to understand what was going on but i in some ways was most fascinated about the bigger picture of thinking about for example the way that fishing combines with climate change combines with recreation in all of the ways people interact with the oceans so that got me interested in stepping away from my studies as a student in bigger picture endeavors so after i finished my phd i switched to the intergovernmental panel on climate change where i worked from 2010 to 2015 
co-directing over most of that time the assessment by many hundreds of scientists from around the world of impacts, adaptation, and vulnerability really broadly defined. Well, I'm going to jump into some of your work on the IPCC, but I just uh, I was hoping to a bit more of your insight on the broader field of adaptation first. And so here you are, you've you've jumped right into it. And so for a lot of people, and I, you know, the conversations I have on this podcast, it's a relatively new field. And I think some people say, no, it's been around a lot longer than it has, but not really. And I mean, what is your sense of it as this emerging field? I mean, do you feel it has a long way to go or do you feel it's pretty sophisticated as it is? I think it's right that our awareness of adapting or becoming more prepared for climate risks that are in the pipeline is had a meteoric rise over the last decades. It, it used to be a hypothetical, something that we thought we might need to do if we didn't get climate change in check. But increasingly, we realized that at the same time that we reduce our emissions of heat trapping gases, there is more warming in the pipeline. And we're going to have to grapple with that, even if we are as ambitious as possible with our mitigation activities. As we look around the world, we really see that people on every single continent are adapting already in some meaningful ways, although although that's a little bit more in terms of planning as compared to actually doing things. And stepping into the next era of adaptation, there's a phenomenal opportunity to say, how can we start to become more scientific about our approach, really understanding what we can do to have goals that are achievable, to measure our progress towards them, to really be able to say this is what's effective and this is what is not. Well, you said you enjoyed working with students. And so my, my question is, I mean, are you like in an advisory role? Do you work with graduate students? I wasn't quite sure. Yeah, I'm very, very fortunate in advising and working with a number of students on the Stanford campus, and they range from master students to PhD students, a few undergraduates doing research already in their careers, um, as well as postdocs and research assistants. I guess my follow-up question to that is I've had on previous guests, and we've talked about how universities, how are they sort of upgrading their programs to incorporate climate change and specifically adaptation? And, you know, we weren't doing a scientific survey, but we, we struggled to find, like, are there a lot of university programs, like, can you get a master's in adaptation or a PhD in adaptation, or is it more of a mix of other backgrounds where you might take some coursework? I mean, how, how do you feel like the academic universe is right now in the field of adaptation? Adaptation is interesting because it draws from so many disciplines all at once. Classically, a lot of the adaptation work that we've seen to date has been in geography departments. But increasingly, I think we're going to have adaptation scholars emerging from economics departments or management sciences and engineering departments. A student with I'm working with now is in a, an officially interdisciplinary program. So she's bringing together methods that range from political science to economics to more physical evaluations of the risks. And I think that's going to be the case moving forward because adaptation, it's about water. It's about ecosystems. It's about poverty. And to get at any of those effectively, you really have to draw from many different ways of thinking about the world, different ways of knowing, different ways of analyzing. Yes, that's a good point. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I had a, a young adaptation researcher out of Ontario. And part of what we talked about is her academic background. And she had mentioned that the University of Waterloo had one of the first climate change programs, master's programs. And what I thought was really interesting is that they modeled it after the, the three sectors of the IPCC. And I'm going to completely blank here, you know, mitigation, adaptation, but I'm probably getting it wrong. But they, they purposely modeled around that. And I just I, I haven't heard as much about maybe 
American universities doing similar things. And yeah, so those three classic IPCC categories are the physical science basis of climate change, then impacts and adaptation. And the third one is mitigation. Thank you. But I would even say for doing adaptation right, that adaptation needs to be completely interlinked, first of all, with the physical science of the changing climate. So climate scientists should be working with social scientists who should be working with lawyers and uh, economists and figuring out these dimensions. And similarly, adaptation in so many real world contexts is happening simultaneously with mitigation. So even that divide between adaptation and mitigation in some ways is a false chasm that's been uh, built into those working groups through time and increasingly being bridged in um, research and assessment. Well, I think it'd be interesting where the universities are on any, I mean, any number of these climate change programs in 10 or 15 years, because it seems like a lot of investment and energy is going to how are they going to, I guess, expose students to these issues. So it'll be interesting how they evolve. And if there's something inspiring uh, in being around students, all the time, one of those dimensions is the fact that they all are so attuned to the bigger picture mm. in which they want to work. And number of students who say, I'm interested in climate change and I want to build a better world. How do I do that? That level of interest uh, from the bottom up in universities, I think, is really helping drive this push towards interdisciplinary emphases, um, institutes that can bridge entire campuses and push towards solution oriented work from the classroom into the world. Yeah, and the guest I had, Suzanne Pordo, she said the exact same thing. It's very encouraging that this younger generation is utterly like inspired to get involved with these fields because they want, I guess, to change the world. So that's very inspiring. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to pivot, and you sort of already jumped the gun on the IPCC work that you've done, and I, I want you to maybe give a little bit of background on that. And I think people in our you know orbits, and I'm not even in your orbit, I'm a different, but with a broader orbit is. We know what it is, but you know, most people, I think, in the United States really have no clue what it is. And it's interesting that you, you took on this really big role in writing uh, one of the, and of course, explain the specifics of the reports that you've been involved in, but you were a director on the adaptation side. And first off, I'm curious, how did you get involved with that? Who recruited you? What was that? I mean, you, you know, you must have been stepping into something really difficult. Well, I, I didn't really know what I was stepping into. Okay. I, <laughs> I was really excited to work on climate change, and I knew I loved synthesis, uh, science that's pushing together all the different lines of understanding to figure out what do we know and what don't we know. And I mean, I think your question of, well, what is the IPCC is a really important one. And the most basic way to think about the IPCC is that it's a grand partnership between the governments of the world and the scientists of the world. And the governments essentially say, you scientists, if you follow our rules for developing a comprehensive report, we'll take your evaluation to be a definitive characterization of what we know right now and what we don't. And those rules really push for comprehensiveness. This is not just scientists saying, here's my work. These reports cite, for example, up to 15,000 publications in each volume. They go through these multiple rounds of review. They have this very signature line-by-line line government approval of the final summaries, and they aim to lay out the options without saying what government should do, recognizing that that should often goes beyond objective science and really needs to recognize the diversity of goals people have. Okay, and literally, so it's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, but who hosts this? I mean, I think a lot of Americans think it's, you know, they, they get these conspiracy notions of like, 
it has this control over the U.S. or something. And, and I'm really just that that's that sort of spectrum. But I, I I don't think people appreciate really what a noble endeavor the IPCC really is. And so it, it it's like housed in Switzerland or something. Where where is it literally sort of coordinated from? I would almost start from the bottom up. In some ways, the IPCC is the best deal the planet's ever gotten. Most of the experts who work for the IPCC don't sit together. They're distributed around the globe, every continent, and they're top professors in universities, top practitioners in research institutes, and they participate in these reports for free. They're volunteering their time to take part in this massive undertaking. So the staff of the IPCC is actually really, really tiny. For a report that would have 800 authors, we're talking dozens of people who work on the different working groups to make it happen. The secretariat of the IPCC is based in Geneva, and they're the people who organize the government meetings where you have the approvals of the summary documents and help identify locations where the author team meetings will happen to develop each report. Then those of us who worked in the staff or the co-chair, so the scientific staff, there were just a very small number of us who were incredibly lucky to be the, the few people who are actually employed as science professionals in the process to work, in my case, with 300 authors for the main report and 120 authors for the report focused on extremes. And we were the ones who were able to help tie the pieces together, kind of the, the skeleton staff helping make it happen. Well, so you were at the center of that. You were one of, I guess, two co-directors of that process, right, of the, your particular track. Exactly, yeah. So you just mentioned, like, uh, all these different authors, and then there's 120 authors. And so I'm assuming you got to know some of these people quite well, but that still must have been a, a real challenge. You, you, every, you know, have different scientists, different styles. I mean, that was that, did it get crazy, or was everything pretty, I don't know, <laughs> uniform, and it, it, it worked? So some of the authors who've been doing these reports for decades, it varies. There are a lot of authors who are doing a report for the very first time, and then there are a few who have done it for their whole career. And the ones who have done these reports again and again, almost without question, the reason why they come back, they say it's for the camaraderie, the degree Hmm. to which you build understanding and ideas together. They're really impressive bonds that happen when you realize that you're drawing from such different contexts across the globe, but you're thinking about the same issues from different angles. And that knowledge creation that happens when people come together is incredibly exciting. So what was your reputation like? Were you like the hard ass or you were the softy? I mean, what, you know, how'd you get things done? You must have really had to like, you know, seize control. I mean, you're, you're getting all this information from so many different people. And is even though their intentions are good, it must've been like, all right, I need that report. Yeah, we had a few of us. So I was not the person who had to do the operations. That person definitely really had to crack the whip and say, (laughs) all 12,000 publications need to be in your chapters and those chapters need to be submitted by this deadline and that cannot slip. So luckily, I didn't have to do that part. But what I got to deal with was what I would call the email avalanche. So we essentially, co-directors of science, would be putting together for the co-chairs and in collaboration with the co-chairs, the the draft summary for policymakers, the draft technical summary, the draft glossary. And then the author team for that summary for policymakers had over 60 authors on it. So, for example, we would send out these documents and then the email avalanche would happen where we would get over several days, you know, 300 emails back with all sorts of comments on how to get the science just right or major points that could be highlighted further. And 
So in some ways, we were kind of the, the synthesizers trying to make it a document that every author could say, yep, that's my document. And it was a big challenge, but it was also incredibly invigorating. Well, I'm sure I must have been very frustrating on a day to day basis, but the sort of the milestones of getting things done, I'm sure w- was very satisfying too on the overall goal of what you guys were trying to do. So yeah, it <laughs> must have been a roller coaster in that respect. But I mean, I would even say that the fun of the day to day was the amount of learning you had to do. And in some ways, that was the most compelling aspect of the process. Getting the reports done was essential and you kind of collapse once they were done. Um, but it was all of the learning that was happening as people were interacting through this process that really kept me going. I dealt with, I mean, I got a master's in ecology, but I was mainly on the policy side, but I just remember the sort of the vigor that went into like assessing an individual paper and, you know, a graduate student with the, I was in just a lab or something and it was just intense. And so you're dealing at that exponentially bigger level. And I mean, what I don't get is that you have all these papers, you have all of it that you're bringing together, and there must be an honor system or a faith system. Like all these papers are in different journals. It's not like they're coming from one journal. They represent all these different peer reviewed journals. And you just assume that process of peer review in those individual journals, I guess, and I hope you're following me. It's just like once those papers got through and you're starting to use those in what you're doing, there's an assumption that this is the best and most legitimate science because you just didn't have the time to sort of say, oh, well, we're we're not going to question this paper at this stage. I mean, does that make sense? Well, I mean, maybe one way to think about it would be that for this big report on impacts adaptation, there were 30 chapters and, you know, one chapter would be on water and another chapter would be on health. And the authors for each of those chapters, you know, about 10 in total, would be world experts in that topic. So they would be the people most able to look at all of the literature that has merged, emerged over the last decade on um, what's going on with disease vectors. How do you understand the potential for extreme heat events to affect people? And they would have to take all these different lines of evidence and figure out the degree to which they line up. What are the strengths and weaknesses of different approaches? Model-based estimates, by definition, are not prognostications of the future. So you're interpreting those numbers based on the holistic backdrop of everything else that exists. So it would be a rare situation where you would point to one paper and just have to say that paper is right unquestioningly. It really would be how do all of these different studies come together to shape what we know right now and what we don't? And how can we be transparent in indicating how confident we are in different aspects based on the nature of the evidence that exists? And that's so fascinating that the standards that scientists sort of set for themselves, especially involved with something as high profile as this, but then you came onto the IPCC, I think it was a year or two after the whole climate gate broke, right? Is is my timing right there? That is exactly right. Right. And so getting down, you know, you look at what they accused them of, like there was the the language like, oh, it's a trick or something like that, that, how they were describing a certain situation. And they were all, you know, sort of exonerated for what happened there, but I had Michael Mann on, you know, he's, his pre, he's been involved with the IPCC and, you know, he just talks about being asymmetrical that the standards that scientists have to set, set for themselves compared to, you know, I guess the opposition. That must be so frustrating for you. And I just, I guess my question partly is like, what was it like coming on to that group just after that must have been a huge hit to their morale, you know, having to deal with that? 
I actually think it was an amazing moment to join into the IPCC experience. Um, you know, if you take Steve Schneider's memoir, he was one of the greats in the climate change mm-hmm. assessment space. And the title of his memoir, one of his uh, recent latest works, was called Science is a Contact Sport. And it is the fact that um, as you take science that's relevant to real-time decision-making, oftentimes when there's discomfort with the actions that people might need to take, that discomfort isn't necessarily channeled at the actions, but science can be a place to funnel it. And I think for scientists, historically, that's been something to really come to terms with and recognize that this is super different as compared to doing research by yourself in the laboratory. But coming on board in 2010, when I did, it was a moment where the IPCC really was learning as an institution. And something like assessment is powerful more because of the process through which it happens as compared to just that final report. Scientists can make reports all by themselves and they may be listened to, they may be not. What really makes the IPCC something that is taken into governments with more ownership is that process. But essential to a good process is the ability to revise it through time as you learn about what works and what doesn't. So following the 2009-2010 events, there is a very intensive review of how the IPCC process worked, its rules and procedures, and it created a new protocol for when there were errors in reports, having a very defined method for evaluating whether there was in fact an error and if there was, how to correct it best. Also enabling higher levels of standards about how to handle communications as science suddenly, unexpectedly is launched into the social dialogue. And if scientists are just sitting there flat footed, the media narrative really might spiral out of control without having their voice in the mix. So on communications in terms of error reporting and how to think about the nature of email traffic, all of those things were addressed at an institutional level to help step up the pace moving forward. And we also put in a very big effort for fact-checking. So we ramped up the degree to which every statement in these reports was checked, helping reduce the likelihood that on page 1,392, every single number was right. Hmm. I think it's encouraging that you set up some protocols that would make you better and more efficient communicators. But at the same time as sort of a, you know, just observing this, it's very frustrating that you guys had to spend the time and I think waste your time that you could have been doing, you know, the, your actual core work on this really, the, this attack. And it, it's very frustrating that, you know, I'm sure as you look back that there was, like you said, there was probably a lot of like, you know, going around and changing processes and how you do these things. And some of it is for the better, but others was just, you just have to watch every little thing you do. And this was a baseless attack and that that's frustrating that you had to waste your time that way. So that's my two cents. Yeah, but you know, I mean, I think anything that's out into society and decision making, it's a messy process. Societal progress happens in fits and starts with lots of muddling through, and that is very much the case in climate change assessment. You know, so even though there were these real challenges and questions at the start of that cycle, this fifth assessment report cycle, the cycle ended with the Paris Agreement. And that trajectory of seeing science being taken into the fundamental contours of what we should do about the climate challenge right now, that was an unbelievable thing to have been a part of. Well, you're being part of trying to save the planet. That's, an, I'm sure, an amazing thing to get you up every morning. And it's a nice pivot. My next question was, 
you were in Marrakesh recently. Just I think it was the the follow up phase to the Paris Agreements, right? And you were there when. Do I have this right? You were there in Marrakesh, right? Yep, I was. Right. So uh, my question is just, what was the vibe like on the ground? You know, Donald Trump gets elected president, which was a shocker to everyone around the world. And so what were people thinking, your colleagues? What were other countries sort of thinking? I mean, yeah. What was your perspective on that? Yeah, maybe I'll even just step back one year and then fast forward to what it felt like in Marrakesh. So, you know, December of 2015. The Paris Agreement uh, was basically adopted by all of the governments of the world. Then something truly unprecedented happened. All the governments had to sign it and ratify it individually. And when it reached a threshold of 55 governments representing 55% of global emissions, the treaty would go into force. And in record timing, it went into force on November 4th of 2016 just days before the meeting in Marrakesh started. So the Marrakesh meeting was supposed to be all about the details. How do governments move forward in the nitty-gritty of implementing this agreement? So first of all, it entered into force. That made it uh, a much more exciting meeting than some people expected. And then on the second day of the meeting, there was the U.S. election, with the somewhat surprising outcome, certainly for people there on the ground. And I landed in Marrakesh just after the U.S. election had ended. There were a lot of questions in terms of what does this mean on the global stage. Jumping back to the Kyoto Protocol, the U.S. failure to participate in that protocol, which was a top-down treaty giving governments developed economies, that is, requirements for how much they would reduce their emissions of heat-trapping gases. U.S. failure to ever join that was really a big dent to its effectiveness. So in some ways, the question was, well, are we at Kyoto Protocol all over again? But if there is something hopeful in the circumstance, it was actually the degree to which there was recognition that the world is really different as compared to what it looked like in the late 1990s. There is unambiguous understanding that the climate is changing and that we are already seeing impacts on every continent of the world. Increasingly, we're seeing momentum in the realm of climate solutions, places where clean energy is inching up in its competitiveness and even surpassing in terms of the prices uh, fossil-based energy sources. And also, other governments are profoundly stepping up in their leadership, not just Europe as it traditionally has, but also China. And early indications have indeed been that China continues to lead in this realm and take forward very seriously its commitment and the opportunities entailed in responding effectively in the climate challenge. Very interesting. China taking the lead on climate change. <laughs> indeed, strange times. But yeah, that's that's very encouraging to hear in that respect. And so it wasn't like this really sense to like dread or anything. People were just more curious of like what's going to happen next. Well, I mean, I think people were a little dazed and confused okay, and wondering what was going to happen next. Go. Yeah. Okay. I, I want to talk a little bit more about the IPCC, but I alluded to it earlier, and maybe it's not necessary that they do this, but I think of the U.S. like population, and it, it's such a misunderstood organization. And I know you guys have all sorts of outreach and communication arms to try to do, do this. I guess more effectively, but what could the IPCC do, I guess, to be resonate more with the American public? And, you know, is that too big to ask? Is it just never going to happen? And you guys just need to keep plugging away on your science and just that it's an independent thing. I mean, I think one way to think about assessment and in particular climate change assessment is that every 
assessment group has its strengths and has its limits. There are basically trade-offs in terms of how effective you could be across scales, global, all the way down to individual cities, and across these different dimensions of pure science to pure policy. So I think the, the IPCC is the global scale assessment on the climate challenge, and it has been for almost three decades now. But that said, in terms of really resonating with the American public, I think there's also a really critical role that we see for other assessment bodies. For example, the National Climate Assessment, which is right now developing its fourth assessment. In some ways, it takes the IPCC conclusions as the big picture context, but then drills down to what does this mean for the Southwest? What does this mean for Alaska? What does this mean for the coastal regions of our West Coast or East Coast into the Arctic as well. And we also see many states in the U.S. doing similar climate change assessments. And as well, there have increasingly been assessments in the security and business realm. So I think expecting the IPCC to do it all uh, is probably not really that feasible. But saying how could the IPCC do its best, increasing its communication in all regards, increasing the degree to which it focuses on really pressing issues in the climate challenge where that level of intensity of bringing everyone together is necessary. That's one key thing. But another key aspect to making climate science a big part of society is also putting together all these different pieces of assessment activities, how that ties to universities, how that ties to communities and nonprofits as well. Well, actually, one of the most frustrating things that when you come up with these multi-year assessments is the kind of real-time aspect of it. You know, I worked at the National Park Service in their climate change program, and I found it very curious because I was on the policy side, but I dealt with a scientist and how people were using the IPCC and the National Climate Assessment. So if people just that's the United States version of the IPCC report, and they weren't using it as much as I thought they would. They would use some of the models, but it 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 came down to like if you're doing some of this applied work, you're going to a workshop and you want to use some of these models, that the IPCC was too conservative and they wanted more aggressive models to sort of reflect if, you know, if it's sea level rise work that they're doing. And so I think part of that is that time lag. You know, you spend all this time, but the new research might come out six months after you release the report and all of a sudden you got to amp it up a little bit. And so I found it was everyone recognized the incredible value of the IPCC, but then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, it's dated information. And so, I mean, deal with that. Is that sort of a, that comes up a lot? Well, it's definitely the case that a report that happens every five to seven years is not going to have continual updating. So in some ways I've taken my IPCC presentation that came out of that 2014 report, and I now call it IPCC Plus, and I just do that continual updating myself. Hmm. There are a lot of ways that that's a major question right now. What what could sustained assessment look like? But I think a really interesting dimension is also the fact that the IPCC assessment, yes, probably could well be described as conservative. It doesn't necessarily do a great job at saying what are the absolute highest risks that should be on the radar. But for the sea level rise example that you mentioned, for example, there's a sea level working group now that's developing scenarios of sea level rise through this century, but then on beyond that to 2300, for example. And it's taking an extreme bounding approach. So not just saying, what do we think is the most likely amount of sea level rise that could happen? But 
in addition to that, bounding the upper level and saying, if we encountered an extreme scenario where West Antarctica collapsed faster than we thought it might possibly, or that it, it just went for collapse, what would happen then? And that kind of sophisticated use of scenarios to explore the full range of possibilities is really important, and it can be well framed by what the IPCC does, at the same time that for different decision-making contexts, those scenarios need to be unfolded to a further degree as compared to what you would have at the global scale. Well, that's encouraging that they've started that process because, I mean, you've, you've seen what sort of sprung up over the last five, seven years, especially with these storms hitting the coast, it, all these sort of coastal resilience toolkits and, you know, sea level rise scenarios are part of that. And it's just like, where are they getting their information? And someone at the top creating some consistent science that's just going to be desperately in need, so... I agree. And I, I mean, I think the the question of how do we inform decision making? How do we understand that there are some cases that we do want to downscale our information and really try to say, here's how warming will differ in this location as compared to this other location. But for other things like how much rain might happen, how much might the heaviest rain events intensify. We also have to recognize that there are limits and that we're never going to be able to say, here's exactly what's going to happen in Norfolk, Virginia, as compared to Miami, and recognize the fact that this is a challenge and risk, and good risk management is attendant to what we may not be able to know, uh, as well as it's very responsive to our best understanding of what the future might hold. Oh, excellent pivot. Speaking of risk, you sent me some interesting material and the, the one PowerPoint presentation you sent me. And I, I have some questions there. And so you had a, a slide there and you talked about these different scenarios. And then it showed adaptation or current ad- adaptation practice, I think, under like two degree scenario and a four degree scenario. And then you overlay, okay, if you take high adaptation actions under these scenarios. And I, I was looking, but I, it didn't occur to me like what is high adaptation versus current adaptation i was i mean it would i'm sure you would have explained it and if i was there for the presentation but what are those two the differences great and so for everyone listening who doesn't have the powerpoint slide maybe i'll just describe what was on it a little bit more and Please. <laughs> basically what we what we did in the last ipcc assessment was put a really big focus on risk where risk is the potential for consequences where something of value is at stake and we don't know what's going to happen and this Focus on risk in particular looked at what we called key risks, risks most deserving of society's attention, risks that are really about where the rubber hits the road, where dangerous climate change would occur. And we use these different criteria across every single chapter of the report. Every author team would apply the same criteria for saying this has a very high likelihood of occurring or very large magnitude of consequence, or it could be something that we couldn't reverse if it were to happen. Or it would be an outcome that would be really, really hard to respond to in real time. We would just be stuck with it if it were to happen. So author teams identified those key risks and then evaluated how risk levels would evolve into the future in the near term, where we've got warming baked into the climate system, even if we're incredibly ambitious about our mitigation activities, as well as into the longer term, a longer term era of climate options, where the amount of warming that occurs will be contingent on the choices we take now in reducing our emissions of heat trapping gases. And then the part you were describing, the next step was to say, well, how could we reduce those risks through different adaptation activities that are about increasing the preparedness of people and societies and economies? And what author teams had to do 
This is really, really hard to do on a century time scale. We don't know what global GDP is going to be in 2100. We don't know uh, how technology will evolve, whether we'll easily be able to move people from coastlines in a way that's just fundamentally different than our world here in 2017. But based on the best available understanding, author teams would consider things like the availability of financial capital. Are the governance structures there so that there's not corruption, that money can be dispersed to make action happen effectively? That corruption aspect can be a big limiter on the global scale, for example. How to think about things like political will or the degree to which in some places, given increases in temperature and humidity, there'll be limits to what people can endure in terms of the physiology required to grapple with that hot, humid weather in combination. At the same time that people considered the potential for lock-in, if we do something on a coastline, if we build a levee, to what degree does that change the incentives behind that levee, creating a more likelihood that development will continue there? Or to what degree could things really change moving into the future? So this is not a perfect exercise. Understanding the socioeconomic scenarios into the future is really, really hard. But author teams would make an evaluation of if we just went with the status quo level of protection that we've got now, what would the risk be? And how do you see the number of entry points there could be for reducing the risks across all different types of human activities? What I find, I mean, it was, it was a fascinating way to look at adaptation, especially, you know, projecting it out, because I think you can appreciate adaptation as a, a field for planners and people that are actually the, you know, local governments that are doing this now. They're hiring these positions, chief resilience officer and I think a lot of it is they're just winging it. And I'm, I'm not saying that the work that they're doing is not completely legitimate, but based on the, you know, how do you do your job today based on we're not sure what the different scenarios will be in the future? And I, I just hope that the kind of work that you're doing is that, okay, I'm a chief resilient officer based on two degree temperature rise. Well, the chief resilience officer would do a very different job if they were basing it on a four degree temperature rise. And you get what I'm kind of getting at here. We need to kind of develop those triggers and metrics and we need to just, I, I think hopefully it's coming, but right now I think we're just, we're winging a lot of this. We're playing with that uncertainty and just, I don't think we're being systematic about it enough. And it's hard. That's kind of the frontier yes. <laughs> in the adaptation space, right? You know, if you say, well, how have we analyzed possible futures and how people could create worlds that they want or how would they deal with worlds that they might get? Most of our work with climate change to date has kind of ignored how society could change. It said, well, what if the temperature were two degrees Celsius or four degrees Celsius? But it's been much more limited in evaluations to date in terms of saying, well, if it's a two degrees Celsius world with a really substantial social safety net as compared to a world with a very limited social safety net, what might that look like? If it's a world with really high population growth or settlement in coastal areas, what does that look like? Those different ways that people could live in different places, interact in different ways, that is the major next step in terms of many of our climate change evaluations. Well, it's an emerging field, so I, you know, <laughs> we have to temper our expectations, but uh, I think the work that you're doing is hopefully going to create some more sophisticated tools out there for the actual, you know, these planners, you know, they hire a local government planner that's having to kind of like, how am I going to factor in sea level rise? It's That's tough business. Yeah. And we now have this global adaptation goal, right? So in the Paris Agreement and stemming from that, there have been all these conversations of at the global scale, at the national scale, at the local scale. How do we know if we're becoming more adapted? 
that can range from, you know, what are the goals we should have overall? How do you even define them in a meaningful way? Are at every city, are you basically thinking across the spectrum that's like the sustainable development goals where they hit kind of every aspect of the human experience? That's question number one. What do you aspire for? Question number two is, you know, what do you monitor through time to understand if a country or a city is becoming more adapted, recognizing that some of the increases in preparedness are going to be deliberate interventions directly targeted at climate change, and others will just be associated with economic development more broadly. And then this third layer of, okay, let's say you are an adaptation practitioner and you're taking an action, you want to know if it's effective. How do you monitor and evaluate that, recognizing that anything happening in a coastal area or in terms of disaster warning systems are going to be affected by a whole bunch of different things simultaneously? And you know, teasing out the effectiveness of individual actions is actually quite challenging in practice so many times. I, I want to kind of pivot to the last couple areas that I want to chat with you. And I think, you know, I alluded to it too earlier about your outreach. You're, you're doing science communication. You're trying to, I guess, talk about the subject. And I'm just curious, just you're an adaptation researcher and I don't think a lot of people even know that they exist. And so how do you kind of get out there now? And, I, and I, I thought about this and I'm curious that what kind of conferences do you attend? Are you, are you more in the international realm? Or are there domestic conferences? What sort of a, event are you going to and kind of sharing your information? A lot of different events. So, well, first of all, you know, having worked for the IPCC, uh, it was a huge gift in some ways and that I was able to participate in meetings that happened really around the world. I would talk with people practicing adaptation in Tanzania or the Philippines or Peru. Really, really diverse conversations where they wanted someone there who could discuss the state of knowledge overall to interact with their local experts in shaping big picture understanding of choices they were making on the ground. So that was what I was able to do as part of the IPCC, and that really ran through the Paris era, the Paris Agreement, and seeing how that suddenly was swept up in the interesting politics of that time. Since then, I have in some way shifted more to a domestic focus, not entirely, but I do conversations that are strictly academic, the science meetings, but I also get out and I talk with groups that are more about nonprofits or students or urban sustainability directors drawing from different areas. And I think what's fascinating is you can take the same story of what we know about the problem of a changing climate, the solution space we've got. And that story resonates with a lot of different audiences. And you can create entry points that enable this to be the climate conversation that's about biodiversity or the climate change conversation that's about cities. And I'm agnostic to where I go, but I really love that diversity of ways that climate change is relevant. So have you heard of the National Adaptation Forum? Is that something you go to? I have a student who just uh, had a paper accepted there, and I'm deciding if I'm going to go. I have a slight conflict. No, I'm, I'm just curious. It's more about that it's a relatively new form, and, and I think early on it had this emphasis on natural resources, but they've really sort of expanded it out across multiple sectors. And I'm just curious, someone like you, do you go to the National Adaptation Forum? And it sounds like you consider it, but maybe so. 
Um, yeah, you know, I mean, it's really interesting in that there is a, a global adaptation meeting that's been increasing traction. Uh, its last major convening was in Rotterdam of May of last year, a really powerful assemblage of experts from around the world. The National Adaptation Forum similarly is expanding in the scope of its activities. California also has activities unfolding. I think all of these different dialogues coming together across scales about adaptation are in line with the degree to which there's increasing recognition that this is something that's already happening and that we're going to need to do more of into the future. And that's an opportunity to build a better world at the same time that it's a challenge. Yeah, and this is the first, I think, adaptation podcast. So there you go. It's an, it's an emerging <laughs> universe, right? Yeah, um, exactly. Okay, so back to you you're talking to some of these different audiences and something it sounds like you like doing. But would you say... And I had this question here is like, you know, do you present in front of non-traditional audiences? And that might mean maybe a potentially hostile audience. My last guest was a CNN reporter and he had this really interesting story when he went out to Woodward, Oklahoma, and he was trying to find a climate change believer. And, you know, I think about what he did and then having you come in and talk to maybe a local church there about the IPCC or some of this other work that you're doing. And have you done similar things or if you would do such a things, I mean, how would you try to structure those conversations? I think that's sort of like, you know, the whole Donald Trump question too, but have you had those kind of hostile audiences ever? I really have strongly tried to emphasize that climate change doesn't need to be politicized when it is politicized. That's more to do with things that are outside the science and um, as compared to really being tied to pursuing knowledge, which we do, whether it's medicine or engineering, in much the same way as we approach the climate issue. I've often had people in the audience who bring really different perspectives on what's important and why. It's been interesting participating in the climate change dialogues at the international scale and in that it makes you realize that skepticism is actually fairly confined in the world today, but it's rather Anglo and it's rather prominent <laughs> in international media as a result. Um, there have been some scientists who have been very, very effective in talking in all communities, and I'd put Catherine Hayo for for example, at the very top of that list. It's something where I've really tried to push towards making it a conversation that's about mutual understanding and it shouldn't be about one person trying to convince another. And once you get to that point of mutual understanding, oftentimes a lot of commonalities emerge in terms of what people care about and what they're trying to achieve. Great answer. So are you going to be involved with the Science March? Is that something on your radar? I'm really uh, supportive of the role of science and evidence in decision-making. I have another meeting that is right running up until Earth Day, but I am... I, will, I like the concept of, you know, could it be a science fair? Could it be about the role of science in real time, not just something that could be perceived as politicizing an absolutely integral part of what we do as Americans? Right. Yeah. That, I mean, I've, I've talked to some people that are really involved with the march and, you know, there's that struggle. You don't want it to turn into some big, like, anti-Trump event and, you know, some of the rhetoric that they're trying to organize around is that, you know, what would be a sort of a perfect word and one I've heard is like service. That should be the message that, you know, scientists should be kind of communicating. It's like, you know, we're out here, we're providing these roles and these services and that if they decide to kind of go with a the theme, I mean, they risk it just being lost really quickly in the overall because, you know, it'll come off as a protest. So it's, it's, it must be tricky. 
Yeah, and I think that word service is a really nice one. How many scientists are motivated by this bigger picture of doing good for society? And they're obviously not in it for the big salaries and the yachts they'll own as a result. They're in it for creating knowledge and creating understanding, helping unfold the world around us. Well, when they first announced it, within a couple of weeks, there was a professor out of Western Carolina who wrote a column in the New York Times basically saying, this is why we shouldn't do it. And I thought that was just so perfect. Like, you know, the, the Women's March here in D.C. that I actually attended, I mean, it just organically happened and there was so much momentum, but leave it to scientists. You know, they come up with this march and then they instantly criticize it. And it's like, it's a peer review, you know, march. And it was just it's <laughs> classic scientist, you know, and that's just in their nature. So I thought it was funny how it kind of worked out that way. And I think for scientists, um, you know, it is an intense moment for the role of evidence and the degree to which evidence in some ways is being attacked in current dialogues. And every scientist is going to need to make his or her own choices about how to engage, how to participate, how to emphasize that science is for society, uh, not something that should be marginalized. That really, That would be a big detriment to our effectiveness. Okay, I, I, I'm almost done with you, but my head has just grown tremendously. I've been loving this conversation, but this has come up, especially with some of my listeners, is that there's this whole, and I, and I think some of it's artificial, but I've been involved with adaptation most of my career, and it's what you're involved in. But there's some people on the mitigation side that somehow think that if you focus on adaptation, that you've thrown in the towel on mitigation and I just think it's absurd. And I, I think this guy, Dave Roberts, wrote for Gris Magazine a couple of years ago, basically, you know, lambasting the adaptation community for doing that. And I think everyone I've been involved with the adaptation, we want the mitigation people to do what they're doing. But it's this notion that if you start thinking about adaptation, you've kind of given up. And I mean, have you encountered that? Does that did that come out in the two different camps of the IPCC? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this question, do we adapt or do we mitigate? I would say that is so 1990. In some ways, it was the major concern when adaptation came onto the scene. You know, if we focus on preparing for impacts that we're already experiencing that may unfold in the next years or decades, would that mean that we give up on mitigation or don't emphasize it enough? But, you know, when we step forward to the current moment, we're in a world that has already experienced one degree Celsius of warming. That's a very large amount in terms of what it takes to shift the earth from a glacial cycle to an interglacial. It's an amount of warming that has caused impacts on every single continent, from the tropics to the poles, from the mountains to the sea. We see it in virtually every state in different ways here in the U.S. So saying at this point that it's a question of adaptation or mitigation really isn't in line with the world we're experiencing. We need to be unbelievably ambitious in terms of reducing our emissions of heat-trapping gases. At some point, not so long from now, we will be an era where clean energy is the good stuff on the basis of the economics, on the basis of the air quality effects, the jobs, the national security dimensions. We're tipping in that direction. But even if we tip in that direction as rapidly as we possibly can, we're going to see more warming over the next few decades, and that's going to carry impacts that we see through heat waves, through droughts, through floods in coastal areas and inland areas. And we have choices about whether we just suffer the damages or whether we make sure we're prepared. I have this aspirational goal with this podcast, too, is I, 
I, I think we've made tremendous progress on mitigation, but I think everyone agree we have a long way to go. The Paris Agreement is this sort of beautiful moment that needs to play out. But I have maybe it's a naive sense that maybe adaptation is this gateway to get more mitigation because if it's something that we're dealing with today, the general public, you know, they need more exposure to climate change and mitigation has sort of been that, you know, you're going to have to change your light bulbs or it's kind of taken away things. And it, it's a terrible PR kind of thing, but I mean, it, it needs to happen. Whereas I think people can galvanize around the notion of like, what are the proactive steps that we can take today? And if it's even just a gateway to kind of introduce them to the broader threats of climate change as we're doing adaptation, I hold out hope that, you know, maybe we play a, a large role to accelerate true mitigation. And so that that's part of my thinking with the podcast. Yeah, no, I think it's very much the case that responding to the impacts of climate change is a here and now activity. And it's about building cities that thrive, that are walkable, that are well defended when disasters unfold. It's about building rural areas that are vibrant, tied to clean air, clean water. There are many different ways that we interact with weather and climate in virtually every aspect of our experiences. And those are all entry points right now for being more prepared for the climate that we'll see next year, next decade, through the century as well. You are so much more articulate than me. I just, I'm so jealous. <laughs> um, that That's a wonderful uh, message. And okay, so I've got a final question for you. And this is what I ask all my guests is, if you could recommend a future guest on the podcast, and if you could play any role in, in getting this and, and think big, I mean, I, I you know, I, I think I, we're getting some really great guests on the show. Who would you recommend? Christiana Figueres. Okay. All right. So it could you maybe get for your average listener, like what, why would that be a good guest? Why would she be a good guest? She was the executive uh, secretary leader of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, um, basically from Copenhagen through to the Paris Agreement. She's one of the most passionate and articulate people on the climate issue today. I think she gets how climate change reverberates with the human experience and the fact that climate is almost never going to be at the top of the priority list, but it's going to connect with everything else. And as she's stepping away from the UNFCCC role she's held for many years now, she's now moving into building action on the ground, bottom up in some really powerful ways. And, and so you know her personally. I I have met her a number of times. I don't think she would say she knows who I am. (laughs) (laughs) What I'm getting at is like an email introduction, but I can track people down, but it's it's always easier if someone actually has a link. But no, that sounds like, and especially if she's leaving that role, sometimes people are a a bit more, not confident, but they're at ease to talk about issues. It might be good timing to to get her to get on. So yeah, I think definitely we can get you some contacts pretty easily. All right. No, I like that a lot. All right. So do you have any sort of final messages? I mean, you saw the ground we covered here, but any last final thoughts before we sign off? I think this idea of making adaptation something that is a conversation that's fun and exciting is incredibly important. It's incredibly relevant. And I really appreciated the opportunity to talk with you. Well, thank you so much. That's what I'm going for. And I thank people like you coming on. You guys are doing amazing work. And I just don't think the public appreciates all this amazing science that's going on. And I personally appreciate what you're doing. I, we first met and I just thought it was so cool. And then as I dug around on you, you're an amazing individual. And, you know, 50 years from now, we're going to look back on what you guys did at the IPCC is just hopefully it saved the planet. So that's, that's a heck of a thing. So thank you for what you do. Great. Thank you so much. 
Thanks again to Catherine Mock for coming on to the podcast. What a fascinating conversation about what's going on at the IPCC. This is a little short break before we have our final segment of the episode. I've invited Tim Watkins and Dan Ackerstein back on to talk about some current events. So that's coming up next. Hey, Adapters. We are back with the second part of this podcast. We had Catherine Mock on earlier from the IPCC, and I think it's appropriate that we're going to have this discussion that we're about to have, but I've got two of my top 10 favorite guests coming back on. I've got Dan Ackerstein and Tim Watkins here to have a conversation. Hey, guys. Hey, but am I number eight and he's number nine, or which way does it go? I was being generous. It's more like top 100. That unlikely. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm <laughs> top three. You're the only oh, guy. I think, I think it's an average. So I, I'm I'm top three or top thirty. <laughs> once once again, Dan, really quickly. Uh, Dan Ackerstein. I am a sustainability consultant based in Santa Cruz, California. And Tim Watkins, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm a science education guy. Wink, wink. Gotcha. Okay. Really big news today. So I recorded this w- with Catherine last week, but uh, it is a, we're recording this on this day that the Scott Pruitt, the head of the EPA, ha- was at a conference this week, and it was an energy conference, and he was interviewed, and he we sort of all had this notion that he was really against climate change, but kind of hearing out of his mouth what he really thought about the issue is it was actually kind of shocking i was shocked i hadn't been shocked about him up until now but uh, let me just read it and i want to get get both of your thoughts on what this means by him saying it this way and kind of things going forward all right so this is what he said during this this conference i think that measuring with precision human activity on the climate is something very challenging to do and there's tremendous disagreement about the degree of impact so no i would not agree that it's the primary contributor to global warming and he's talking about carbon that we see but we don't know that yet he continued we need to continue the debate and continue the review and the analysis dan your thoughts on that so my favorite thing about the statement is the the construction of uh, of of the the words itself the syntax is is phenomenal he basically says two things that are universally true that no one can argue with certainly scientists have no argument with the idea that that it's challenging to measure uh human activity on the climate and, and to do so precisely, and that there is disagreement about the degree of impact. Those are those are those are conceded points as far as I as far as I know the science. But he then takes those two points and, based upon them, comes to a conclusion that is completely dissociated from the evidence he has just presented. It's as if I said the sky is blue, clouds are in the sky, and therefore the Earth is flat. <laughs> and to me, that's just a, a triumph of of Trumpian logic and doublespeak uh, that is unfortunately characteristic of the last couple months and unfortunately the next three years. Tim. Yeah, that's a great observation there, Dan. Um, Good parsing. I was interested uh, that he's recycling kind of an old argument. You hear it now in climate change, but it's an old argument um, from 30 years ago about acid rain during the Reagan era. We don't know enough. You know, or maybe it's a problem, but we just don't know enough, and so we have to study it. And of course, that shuts down uh, any intention to take action. And that seems to be what he's saying here, right? And it was curious that in his syntax, he actually uh, he seems to acknowledge that climate change is happening, right? Right. Yeah. I don't have the line right in front of me, but he says, you know, 
he he claims that human activity does not explain the climate change that we are already seeing. And I, I kind of wasn't expecting that. He seems to be acknowledging that climate change is real, but he's he's weaseling out of it. Right. Um, so it's just yeah, it's a, it's an old tactic, I think. He does the the line is that uh, it's I I would not agree that's the primary contributor to global warming that we see and you know I don't know if they purposely excluded all his remarks but I didn't see anything about him asking the federal agencies responsible for gathering that sort of data to keep doing what they're doing but we all know that just recently in some of the budgets for Trump things uh, you know agencies like NOAA that provide a lot of the basic climate science they're looking at getting a budget cut to provide just this information and you think he would have spoken out to say no you shouldn't do that because we need more of this information and obviously he wasn't going to do such a thing so i mean very disingenuous comments about the you know we need to continue to review the, and do this analysis i thought it was particularly interesting that his comments you know the the times uh, analysis on on his comments noted that his comments actually put him to the right of folks in the oil industry in terms of his his statement really is not a even a mainstream conservative statement about climate change it's a radical de-scienceized perspective uh, that even the folks at shell and corporations like that couldn't couldn't get behind and couldn't feel comfortable with it's 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 so dissociated from reality that uh, even folks who stand to benefit enormously from it uh, weren't able to to feel comfortable repeating it yeah you know, big oil in recent years actually has come out and, and acknowledged that climate change is, is happening. Um, and they've revealed that they've known that for a long time, of course. And they've called for a uniform policy landscape at the federal level. And so what he's saying and then the policy implications of, of what he's saying is completely uh, runs counter to what uh, some of the voices in big oil have said over the past couple of years. So that's a I, I agree with you, Dan, on that one. Yeah. If if you're an oil company right now, are you thinking to yourself, okay, this represents this administration represents a four and potentially eight year disruption to what is a larger trend where we need to adjust to the reality of of human caused climate change, or do you think that the oil industry is optimistic that this is a a, a shift in the landscape that will be permanent? I would think that they'd probably take two tracks there i think that most of the big oil companies have they're so involved on on international issues and those conversations aren't going to go away and so if they can take advantage i guess maybe d- domestically they, they'll do it where they can i i don't think they're going to step back to sort of do something like this and question the fundamental science of climate change i just think they're gonna i think adjust accordingly to the domestic market mm. tim I, I, would, I don't think I would even pretend to speak for oil companies. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I leave that sort of speculation up to Doug. What really stood out for me is like we look at all the sort of these cabinet posts, and you know we, we weren't happy with a lot of them, but the confidence that this guy has talking about such a controversial issue. I mean, he's you know it's it's almost a little bit of fearless. Like I'm a climate change skeptic. I'm in charge of this agency now and i'm not going to tiptoe around it i don't believe in this and we're going to act accordingly and i think that just sort of lives up to a lot of our worst expectations of a guy i think a lot of times when you have people that aren't necessarily 
responsive to the issue. At least they kind of tiptoe around it. They give you weasel words, or they just try to pretend that they're going to just do the dance that you're supposed to. And this guy doesn't even seem like he wants to even bother doing that. As I read this, it occurred to me what this must mean for morale at the EPA, for people that have dedicated their lives to protecting the environment and to have someone at the very top come out and question such fundamental science. And I think a a knee-jerk reaction for a lot of people is like, i got to get out of here. If they have the opportunity to find a job elsewhere. And, you know, it occurred to me that what I want to see is their act of resistance is staying on. That's what these people want to happen. It's the best and brightest at these agencies to feel isolated or ostracized and not do their job well and even leave. And so, you know, one of the acts of resistance is making it through. You know, there will be a new administration, be it four years or eight years from now. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, even if they're listening to this podcast, I hope that they kind of see that, you know, we need them there. That's, that, that's what I was thinking about today. So apparently just- the head of the, um, the head of the envi- of environmental justice division at EPA resigned. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, environmental justice is a is a particular nexus of Trump sort of impacts, right? I mean, the the idea that the idea that the environment matters and the idea that underserved communities of brown people matter are both anathema to the administration. And so, where where they overlay each other, it you, you can only imagine how low on the list of priorities environmental justice would be in a in a Trump administration. To me, I think it's really interesting this idea that. At the EPA, the sort of pyramid by which the hierarchy by which performance is measured has now been inverted. And the things that you did well that led to promotion and success in over the last eight years are now the things that are likely to ensure that you have no hope of promotion or success in the EPA for the next four to eight years. Um, I can't imagine what it's like to be an employee where such an abrupt 180-degree reversal of your incentives and your performance review uh, takes place. It's, it's, it's radical doesn't begin to describe the reorientation they must be facing. Yeah, no doubt there. But I, I, I need to, like, reach in and pull you guys up out of the mud here a little bit and um, maybe talk about a couple of positive trends, however, that are also um, popping in the news this week. And I think it's worth noting that on this podcast, um, various episodes and our conversations have pointed out that the U.S. federal government is not the only player on the face of the planet. And frankly, a lot of adaptation and a lot of mitigation leadership is happening in cities and states. And so, yes, we're seeing um, a complete breakdown of federal leadership under the Trump administration. But, uh, you know, let's not lose sight of the fact that there's some good leadership at other levels of government. And so, for example, there are pieces of legislation being introduced in state legislatures to put a price on carbon, to introduce a carbon tax or carbon fee plus a rebate. And in recent weeks, and actually currently right now, there's legislation in uh, pending in New York State, Oregon, uh, and Massachusetts are just the three that I've heard about. And um, I saw another news item today that in deep red Alabama, the world's or sorry, the country's largest solar uh, PV array is now coming online. And it's 
producing enough electricity to power, I don't remember how many tens or 150,000 homes or something like that. So not a part of the country where I would have expected that. But, you know, you do see this and uh, federal government be damned. Right. Um, The states are going to move and cities are going to move ahead on their own. Well, Dan's from California, and they are doing some very exciting things. And, you know, I, I agree, Tim. I just think, you know, when you when you hear these things, you see the sort of stories. It's like, I think where a lot of us are just in this sort of waiting period for this shoe to drop for all these awful things that we thought were going to happen, and now they're happening. And it's just be nice just to get them behind us, and I think that's part of it. And then, like you're saying, you know, what kind of positive things can kind of come up in response to these other negative things. And I think that's those are the things to look forward to. And one of the things yeah, Pruitt I, did say in his announcement is that he wants to scale down the EPA and return uh, environmental policymaking, quote, back to the states. And so there are lots of states that are going to, you know, take the lead on that and, and do good things about climate change, I think. The problem is it won't be consistent across the country. Well, and, and the climate change is the kind of issue that defies those those boundaries so so drastically that if if we end up outsourcing all of our carbon intensive industry to the the reddest states uh, our our net carbon may not change dramatically it, it's it, i don't know i i guess i'm less optimistic about about states rights being the savior of um of the environment just because there's so many opportunities for for hiding high impact activities and and parking them in states where regulation is is not going to to compensate for for Trump's backwardness. Yeah. Remains to be seen. Okay, let's end it on a positive note. Any uh any positive <laughs> words here Tim? <laughs> you 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 tend to bring us back around. So I, I appreciate that. Uh, I, it, the sobering news today, I don't think we could sugarcoat that. But at the same time, yes, there, there's paths ahead and a lot of exciting things happening out there. Any yeah. fi- final thoughts, either of you? Well, yeah, I'll just mention the uh, Yale Climate Communication Study that was released this week as well shows a great deal of public support for uh, federal government action um, on climate change. So Pruitt comments, you know, when they sort of work their way through the policy realm may encounter resistance, hopefully, if people really do stand up and speak their minds and let their government know what we want. There's considerable interest out there in climate change action. Dan, anything? Tim, that is delightfully optimistic. <laughs> um, you know, the best the, the best I can say is that the the, the, the sunlight is, a va- is always a value, and I commend the Trump administration for their willingness to be frank and honest about their plans to rape and plunder. I think that uh, that it, it's refreshing that they're just going to get right out and say things like, we don't believe in that the carbon is affecting the climate. We don't believe that this is human activity. The the content is nonsense, but their willingness to get out and and state their, their nonsense publicly is, is refreshing and it's it establishes the terms for debate. And I think, frankly, if the environmental community, if all of the progressive communities that were so shocked by this election are not able to articulate a, a counter message, then we we deserve what we get. That's not optimistic. I failed completely at your assignment to end on a note of optimism. Uh, <laughs> haven't, you seen any, haven't you seen any like pretty 
bunnies or anything in the last week? Anything really? I don't know. The best thing that happened to me this week was the Celtics beat the the Warriors last night. So that's the only ray of sunshine in my life. Okay, I got a really so, positive one. But Tim, you had something to say before I get? No, I, Doug, I was just wondering: Am I Siskel and he's Ebert, or is it the other way around? <laughs> Know who you are, Laurel and Hardy, or something. Uh, okay, here here's very positive note, and I, I've already shared this with Dan. But I heard randomly from a podcast listener. Apparently, there are these 13 year old uh, boys out in Oregon who listened to the podcast, and one of them wrote me, and uh, and he was saying that I don't cover enough youth issues, and apparently he and his friend started their own blog, and they've actually gone around talking about climate change to various spots. They've been interviewed in the media, and I think they're working to bring attention to some bill in Oregon, and they've talked to the governor and to the mayor, and so he wrote me and said, you know – not enough coverage is on dedicated toward younger people working on this issue. And he asked if he could come on the podcast. And so I was just tickled that someone out there at his age is doing this sort of thing. And so I, I contacted uh, him and, you know, maybe, maybe something like we'll, we'll get some folks like that onto the podcast to talk about how kids are tackling this issue. So I was very encouraged that, you know, my 13 year old, you know, can barely feed himself. And then I hear these 13 year olds working on solving climate change. So I, I was really inspired by by that outreach. That's great news, Doug. I think you should definitely have them on. And I agree. We should um, tackle some more youth oriented issues and and um, kids doing good things. All right. On that note, thanks, Dan. Thanks, Tim. Over and out, everyone. This is America Daps. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, Doug. Okay, everyone, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Thanks to Dr. Catherine Mock for coming on. Thanks to Dan Ackerstein and Tim Watkins for coming on and sharing their thoughts about what's going on at the EPA. Some sobering news there, but we, we want to talk about those issues here on the podcast. Also upcoming again, I, next week I have Nancy Knowlton talking about the Earth Optimism Summit that's occurring in Washington, D.C. next month. And also going to be talking about the Science March. And these are two uh, uh, events that are occurring very close to each other. And soon after that is the Climate March. And I had mentioned previous guests that are going to be coming on the show. I have Judge Alice Hill, formerly of the White House, with National Security Council. I have Bill McKibben, legendary figure Bill McKibben, coming on talking about climate change, the climate march. It was just a, a thrilling conversation to have with, with such a legend in the field, and I will be publishing him very soon. Also, don't forget to subscribe and feel free to contact me at americadaps at gmail.com. Also, if you want to consider supporting the podcast, I do have an option for that at the website at americaadapts.org. And if you have ideas for guests, I hear every week from different people with ideas for guests. And you know what? I, I want to put a plug in here. I've heard from some folks, but I, I'm looking for and I could do some homework and find it myself, but I want to see if you guys can make some great suggestions. Is you know someone who's doing some agricultural work, you know, farmers who are dealing with climate change and are actually doing some adaptation. And you know, I think some folks are doing some great work at some conservation groups out there and other environmental groups. But if you know someone who might be closer to the land working on these issues, if you have some ideas, yes, please contact me. I, I'd like to connect that way with some folks. That's an, an area that I have not focused on, and I think. Areas like environmental justice, and people are always recommending new areas, and I'd like to think that we're exploring new topics, but it's just going to take some time. But on that note, I hope you all have a great week. It's America Adapts.